Hi, my name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. There's something about the small memories from our childhoods that stick with us, comfort us, and challenge us on the days when we need them most and, most importantly, on the days when we don't even realize that those memories, those lessons, are even with us. At first, I met Michal Cutler Wunsch because she represents a nuanced, principled, and ideologically driven political view that I connected with. And, if I'm being completely honest, keeps me feeling sane in the rough waters of 21st century Israeli politics, populism, and polarization. But I must admit, when I asked her to sit down with me for the interview, I'd forgotten one of the coolest features about her. Her mother served as Menachem Begin's personal secretary. As you'll hear in the interview, I'm a bit shocked and excited to learn this. The lesson? I should probably do more research on the interviewees, but if I'm being honest, and you know that's the only way I can really be, I hate turning people into Wikipedia pages, news articles, and buzzwords that push them into the corners of identity politics. I hate being put into a box by people's preconceived notions, and I don't even have a Wikipedia page. Imagine how these people feel. Anyway, back to Michal. Sure, her worldview and her politics brought me to her. But there's something more to it, compelling me to learn from her. It's seeds that were planted by, I would imagine, her mother, a working mother who worked for Israel's most principled politician. We sat down in my makeshift studio in the lobby of the Imbal Hotel for a conversation about my two favorite pastimes, life and politics. This is my conversation with former Knesset member Michal Cutler Wunsch. I have a very uh, weird question that when I when I asked to interview you, it's the question I wanted to ask. When was the moment that you realized as a kid that you were a Jew? So, first of all, I was born in Jerusalem. That's right. So That's easy. It's, it, yeah, it's it sort of it sort of makes it makes it easy, but it's an interesting question because the second question that begets like when is the moment that you realize you're a Jew? It's about identity essentially. Is actually sometimes when we're denied the possibility of being who we are, right? So I was born in Jerusalem, but I grew up in Canada. Oh, interesting. And in many, many ways, the most formative understanding of what it means to be a Jew in the incredible age that we live in, that the state of Israel exists, sometimes you wonder if taking something for granted, it's true for every part of our identity, if taking something for granted is something that is a service or a disservice to us. So being born in Jerusalem or being born in Israel for many Israelis is sort of, oh, so obviously I'm a Jew. I was... It's not so obvious, right? And I think that actually Global Jury has a huge lesson to teach Israelis from that perspective. And all Olim, as the bridge between Global Jury and Israel, have a huge role in teaching us Israelis. By the way, for Jews, it means Israeli Jews. 
for non-Jews who legitimately are Israeli citizens, obviously, and have a separate part of their identity, this is less relevant for. But as Jews, what it means to be a part of, a member of that indigenous people I refer to return to an ancestral homeland, ironically, sometimes, and I, at least in my case, understand it much better from the outside looking in. Right? The privilege of returning to Israel, which I did on my own, actually, as a not so young teenager, I guess, at 17, and then to serve as a lone soldier in the army, I think that those were the defining moments of my understanding of what it means to be a Jew. And that was kind of before it was like Green Safar and there were all these pro- before, projects. Yeah. I stayed alone soldiers all the time. So when we were lone soldiers and there was a group of us, the army didn't really know what to do with we're us. We were truly alone. We were really alone. And the incredible thing is, first of all, it exposed certainly me and gave me this tremendous honor of knowing the entire gamut of Israeli society and the understanding that I was never actually alone, right? So I had, I was a lone soldier, but there were parents fighting for who would take my laundry and who would bring me food. And when I stayed for Shabbat. That's so Jewish. So (laughs) Jewish. But also the understanding that at the end of the day, you know, there were vendors in the shuk, Marzipan and Zidkiyahu, that knew that there were lone soldiers that were arriving back in Jerusalem and everything would be closed. Supermarkets were closed. There were very few 24 hours. I'm I'm that old. Um, Things were pretty much shut down in Jerusalem, they would they would leave boxes packaged or wait until all like, you know, we made it to the shuk um, to pick up these packaged, prepackaged boxes of food, of ready food or, you know. Yeah. That was at a time that lone soldiers were really alone. I do say very often to lone soldiers and to their parents that what that meant was we coped with our aloneness while we were in the army. I think what happens today with all the incredible, incredible cushioning and comforts of lone soldiers and support of lone soldiers is very often the understanding that they're alone here comes after the army, where there is a lot less of a, you know, infrastructure to support and to guide and to, so the challenge has just been delayed by a few years. It's still there. And then they wake up to it one day at Tel Aviv University and they don't know how to get there. And, and there's and there's no one and there's no one inherently sort of understanding that because they just finished the army. There's this understanding that you're oh well, you've been here for a while and you've assimilated. You've, you're you've, one of us. Yeah, you're one of us. You've integrated fully. And so actually in Knesset, I would use the word very often integration instead of just Aliyah and Klita. So Aliyah and Klita, when we were creating or returning to this state in the 50s, Aliyah and Klita were the focus, right? Aliyah, Czech. You know, it's actually the moment that you've stepped off that plane and Klita is that first package of helping you in the first steps in Israel. And I would argue, and I do, that in 2022, we have to be looking at integration as our goal. Aliyah is not enough and Klita is not enough, but integration has to be our goal. And integration of Aliyah and looking at Aliyah is not only the realization of the vision, mission, values of the state of Israel, but also as aliyah that all comes from b'chira, from choice, and not aliyah that comes from b'richa, no matter where people come from, right? I don't care. To me, it makes no difference if people have made aliyah and traversed and realized that dream and vision from Ethiopia, from France, from Canada, or from Ukraine. The importance of, for Israelis, speaking of what's that defining moment of identity, when did you realize you're a Jew? The importance of understanding the through each and every ole and ola, that make that elective choice, doesn't matter why they came, to move to Israel, that Jewish and democratic nation state that is committed to equality for all and so on and so on, they're the daily reminder of why we're here, right? Each one of them. And so Aliyah has to be not just bringing people and assisting them in their first 10 steps, but actually in their integration and in the assurance that Olim, 
affect the challenges or the decisions that are made in this challenging intersection of, I would say, global and local intersection of challenges. So in all of those things I spoke about, internal Israeli yeah. resilience, Israel's relations with global jury, and Israel standing in the international arena. So there is very little Olim voices actually around decision-making tables. You look at the civic sector, it's filled with initiatives and and incredible ideas and, you know, large organizations, Shalva, Likit, small organizations yeah. in, you know, in cities, communities, the understanding of community, right? When you're here alone, by definition, you yeah. don't have a community. The integration of Olim is probably one of the most important test cases for me for the aging of the state of Israel and understanding its role in terms of a sovereign country that the state has responsibility and accountability and, and transparency and words that, you know, to North American ears make a lot of sense. But to Israel, that's still a growing or an aging democracy and yeah. not so old democracy, unlike seasoned democracies that many of us made Aliyah from. That understanding that Olim have a tremendous amount of impact to make on on the state of Israel's yeah. next 75 years. Yeah. Do you think sometimes that the Aliyah conversation is like only really spoken about in English and that in Hebrew it kind of, it's there, it's nice, but it's not really critical because maybe voters don't really care about it. And how did you kind of grapple with that? And how do you think the path forward should be to make it a mainstream issue or case because if you look at successful nations one of the key indicators is growth and population and if you can add into your existing pool even more people you know who are going to get married have kids and multiply and multiply it's good for the country you're 100% right and i think when you look at israel we're a country of olim right yeah. in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s you know there's a marachon urizor just passed away called lul about the aliyah so the first olim that get off the boat they they're standing on the shore and now they're laughing at the next yeah. olim that are coming on the next boat 5 minutes later they're laughing at the yeah. next olim and i argue and i did in knesset and covid was an incredible opportunity to realize this that we have to grow up Right? As a country, we have to grow up and understand that you don't need that stage of laughing at the next new immigrants. You need to immediately understand the dignity of difference and immediately be able to encapsulate what can be learned from this yeah. incredible wealth and diversity that we are so, so, so lucky, fortunate to have as a natural sort of reinvigoration of our society in every way possible. It doesn't matter if it's education or business or, 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 or the you know, civic sector that I spoke about. The way forward, and sometimes it, it challenges me, but the way forward is to think about how it is that Olim sound their voices and understand that we have a role to play around decision-making tables. So on one hand, to empower Olim to understand that their voices are important. And on the other hand, to understand that the importance of their voices also demands a responsibility to insist on being around decision-making tables. Does that mean a political organization, so a party of Olim? By the way, it's been tried, of course, in the past. Yeah. And I'll say that actually in those years of Aliyah from the former Soviet jury, because of the sheer numbers, it translated into mandates. But those numbers exist, meaning it's not just a numbers issue. It's also a state of mind issue. Do Olim understand? And, and in this sense, it's, you know, as I said, very often Olim, I don't want to just talk about Anglo Olim, but Olim that come from democratic countries with seasoned democratic experience, with seasoned democratic understanding that in order to affect democracy, you have to play in the game. And that means that you have to opt in, not just opt in on yeah. voting day, and not just pick from, you know, the best of the worst options, but actually 
present another option and create another option and lean in to be around those decision-making tables and find ways to affect the political situation and the political decision-making because that's where, at the end of the day, where decisions are made are in the Knesset. So you can create a very rich alternative to the political system, and I, and I think we'll even have, in many ways, that whole third sector that has benefited. But you can't fix the system without actually entering it. Yeah. And that's it. That's a call to action for us as well. And I can say, I said about COVID, that there was this realization. I know that my office served as a constituency office, although that's not the political yeah. system in Israel. But we were responding to thousands Weddings, of Weddings, presses. Precisely. Um, Olim that were due to give birth. Olim that couldn't see their aging parents or aging parents that couldn't come to Israel or that couldn't attend weddings and brises. And, and yeah. all of a sudden there was this understanding that, wait a minute, there is this constituency, but it doesn't know it's a constituency or it doesn't vote like a constituency. Yeah. What do we do with that? That's a challenge. Yeah. And I think based on my like anecdotal perception, most, you would say, are center-right, you know, 70%. So you could actually have a party. Exactly. There's an idea. But by the way, most are there, and I don't like to define it anymore as yeah. center or right or left. I just use the Declaration of Independence always as my anchor. Most of those people we're talking about, they chose to make Aliyah Israel yeah. because it's a Jewish and democratic country committed to equality, right? Yeah. Because it's the nation state of the Jewish people that knows that that doesn't mean that maybe there aren't other indigenous peoples that claim indigeneity that we're here and we have to figure out how yeah. to coexist. So there is this shared value system, actually, that enables a deeper conversation. And there's also life itself in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of community life, in yeah. terms of expectation of how, you know, the, the quality of life that demands a kind of work, a, a social mobility that enables an integration into the work sector. So there is a lot of shared understanding, a lot of shared values, but no political representation for that, as you described it, centrist, let's call it moderate, the yeah. muscular moderates, yeah. that I believe that many, like a vast majority of Olim would feel comfortable to, to belong to. Yeah. And yet and yet our votes are not, they don't represent that, right? They're yeah. not seen in that way. We're sort of a, a, a swing vote, in theory, could be if we organized politically. You, one could argue that the aged Olim have organized politically and they're all from Russia <laughs> or Russian-speaking countries and they vote for Lieberman. Right, so, the, so, so right. So the question is, look, First of all, is it a goal of the party to have viewpoint diversity, right? So if you tell me it's a party that represents a certain sector of Israeli society, and that's where I said I, I get into a, a, a complication with myself because the last thing our political system needs is another party on one hand. On the other hand, if no party says, I don't represent whoever you think looks like me, talks like me, sounds like me, or thinks like me. I represent the entire Israeli public because we're integrated into the entire Israeli public, right? These yeah. Alim, and it doesn't matter if you came from the former Soviet Union, Canada, or France, have a certain set of values that is actually such a huge shared, and that's the great news for Israel, such a huge shared platform or infrastructure that we can stand on together as we engage the challenges that we have together. To say that a party represents one sector, let's say Olim from the former Soviet Union, and that's their voting sort of constituency, is insufficient for me, right? Because it, it, it just, it's geographic, right? So we came from somewhere, meaning not enough people came from Canada, so we don't have yeah. a party. But, but the point is actually to transcend real or perceived differences of geography, 
of denomination, of religious affiliation, of, of religion at all, and to say we, ha we share something much, much bigger. So I believe in the Israeli public's political sophistication very much. I think that we have a very smart, savvy public that ranges a very wide mosaic. And actually, where, if you ask me, where blue and white failed, for example, it's that we didn't really present an alternative. We presented a personalized sort of just not that person, and some or some people presented that. Yeah. I certainly didn't. But we didn't present the alternative of what, yes, what, what do we believe in and what are our priorities and what do we commit to the public that we are asking for, for their support. And that's where a sectorial party is going to, at this point, for me, not be sophisticated enough. On the other hand, a diluted party that doesn't have that agenda that it proposes that it engages the public with, that is, is committed to, that it's held to account to in the next election. Did you deliver? Is this really the vision, mission, values that led you in your actions in Knesset? And the role of Knesset actually is not only the legislator, but is the supervising branch of the executive. That is something that is hugely missing in today's political system. A lot of people look at Olim as a great foil for what the state of Israel should or could be or could represent or the story it could or should tell. What do you think about that? And do you think it's a story that the public has an appetite to hear? And if not, why? So I think about this question a lot. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that Olim, first of all, Olim are what Israel is. Right? Now the question is, do we communicate that? Does everybody know it? Does everybody acknowledge it? Do we understand what that means? Because Olim are what Israel is. As I said, Israel is a country of Olim. From the moment that we began the return to this ancestral homeland, you know, 1917 Balfour Declaration, 1921 the San Remo Conference, acknowledging the right of the Jewish people as an indigenous people to this land, and the beginning of a return and an awakening. Um, and I begin there purposely, and I don't begin in post-Holocaust purposely, because Israel does not exist because the Holocaust occurred. Rather, the Holocaust wouldn't have occurred had Israel existed, right? And the Zionist Project actually you can go down the street to the Herzl Museum and see the manuscript in Theodore Herzl's handwriting that's 120 years old of Al Neuland. So the understanding that Olim are what this country is, I don't use these words loosely, the sort of you're the manifestation of the vision, mission, values of the state of Israel, but that's what you are, right? You're the real living proof of it. And in that sense, that's why, to me, Olim are the real bridge to the internal sort of Israeli society and its challenges, to global jury, and to the rest of the world, the countries from which they came. Now I would add that they're an untapped, re we are an untapped resource. Here we have this incredible, you know, sort of natural resource, if you will, of the state of Israel. Other countries may have diamonds and, I don't know, oil. And we have Olim. We have a lean that actually every single day when they get off a plane, and, and it, to me, as I said, doesn't matter where they came from, right? So I was the chair of the Ethiopians in Israel caucus. And I am just as committed to the integration of Ethiopian Olim as I am to the integration of Canadian Olim. It doesn't matter where I came from. Because that's the point, right? Because this is the natural resource that that sub-Israelis or Israelis that have been here for 20 years and maybe forgot, right? Olim that came 20 years ago and maybe forgot or are raising children who are Israeli and maybe forgot. That reminder, that daily reminder is actually so fundamentally Jewish, but also so fundamentally universal in understanding the concept of 
remembrance and reminder, right? That's what we do. We remember. Zachol, right? The word zachol. But also the understanding that for identity in today's reality, where, where the individual is in many ways at the center, and yet we see a growing number of people who at this luckiest time in history are, are lost in terms of finding their identity and searching for their identity and uncomfortable with their identity or sad about their identity and challenged by their identity. Here we have this built-in resource, untapped, and I see it very much as my role and responsibility. It doesn't matter from what platform, and that's why when I realized that the, this Knesset would be even less effective than the previous Knesset on which I was fortunate enough to serve, the time used to search for both platforms and ways of that three-pronged action. One, to empower Olim to recognize our own self-worth and importance of what we represent, if I'm indeed right that it's the vision, mission, values of this country, that, that's a really big deal. Two, to serve as a call to action for those Olim, right? To say, with that incredible ability you have comes a tremendous responsibility. And three, to make that accessible to, let's call it the general Israeli public, whether it's decision makers or dafka from a bottom-up sort of approach, right. to reach across to younger generations and to speak about the source of the understanding of identity in today's world and what a resource that is that we have to tap back into. I call it emancipating Zionism in some circles, and I call it emancipating liberalism in many others, or taking back human rights or intersectionality, so that we can speak the language that actually challenges us from the place it challenges us, yeah. and Olim are the bridge to. I think about it a lot. I think about the missed opportunities over and over again, and what we have to do in our generation, on the other hand, not to look back to say, you know, why didn't they? There's no they, yeah. there's us. So previous generations didn't have the ability to do this, and we do. But don't you think that mission is a lot harder when you take into consideration that Israel is far more Israeli than it is Jewish, culturally? So there too, I think it's incredible because look, when you look at Jewish history, thousands of years of Jewish history, and the last 74 years in terms of cultural sort of, I'd say, breadth and depth of creativity of, you know, it doesn't matter if it's music or authors or and writing in Hebrew as a language that's living and breathing. I mean, I think that that is what Israel actually can bring global jury. So yes, it demands that you understand and that you can connect to the language, which is a big, big unspoken about hurdle that we have. Yeah. Right, You can't connect to what Israel is and you say it's more Israeli by definition. So the question is, so should Israelis speak more English? Yes, absolutely. And by the way, and Arabic? Yes, absolutely. Right? We live in a region where another law that yeah. dispersed with the Knesset that I'm very sad about was actually a law that would make the study of spoken Arabic, not literary Arabic, spoken Arabic compulsory in elementary school age for every single child in Israel. Right? Because it's that's like, that's... That's unacceptable that my own kids that have graduated from the educational system in Israel don't speak Arabic, but that's a whole other topic. In terms of what Israel brings to global jury in its identity, it's these last 74 years, right? And how do we make that accessible and connect through that place of what, what Israel is? But on the other hand, if you look at, at the creative sort of, or even conversation that we've had around what it means to be Jewish and democratic, 
and, and by the way, Olim have contributed to this tremendously. And I can mention, you know, it's not about names, it's more about ideas of, you know, the Avichai Foundation and Beit Avichai of founding or bringing the understanding that we exist on this religious spectrum that has to, you know, evolve with time and enable a con continued conversation. It's not 100% true that it's more Israeli than not. It's just that it's all in Hebrew. So it's not always accessible. And, and I think that in many ways, that's the responsibility, again, of Israel as the nation state. At the end of the day, it's Israel that has that responsibility to reach across difference, to make this accessible. But not because it should change itself, just because it should learn to communicate itself better yeah. and make it accessible, not only to global jury, but obviously to the countries in which communities live. And that is, to me, one of the biggest tasks of our generation, in fact. You spoke at a conference, I couldn't go, unfortunately, about my favorite Ole of all time, Menachem Begin. And I was just curious, you know, it was kind of depicted in the media as like new age, right-wing conference. And then I saw you there and I thought, what is it like defending or remembering the legacy of Menachem Begin from the center or as a moderate? So first of all, and actually it's exactly what I spoke about at the conference, is that Menachem Begin, there was no contradiction in terms or in understandings or in decisions he made. And many people relate to his legacy in what suits them, right? So let's call it the left will take the part of peace and the right will take the part of Itnachluyot or Jerusalem, right? Just to be very, very rough, though I don't yeah. like those. He was completely consistent and coherent is in his understanding, and there I go back to the Declaration of Independence, completely coherent in his, in his understanding and in, in his uncompromising intersection between liberal values, between his liberal identity, and between Zionist values. Zionism is a progressive national liberation movement, which he understood was the single most important opportunity for not only Jewish survival, but Jewish revival. So. I'm not um, overwhelmed by being depicted as either right or left because I speak at a conference here or there. What I hope to be able to do is actually be the bridge that in many ways he preceded his time, right? The understanding of that Mahapach, I was a seven-year-old little girl in Knesset in that Mahapach because my mother was his parliamentary secretary. So oh, really? So we didn't talk about. Oh, wow. Which may have additional questions. But I was, um, my mom raised me alone in Jerusalem of the 70s a long time ago. And she was Menachem Begin's parliamentary secretary and the legislative secretary of the Likud party. And in 1977, so now you know how old I am, I was seven years old sitting at the Knesset cafeteria. You're lucky I'm really bad at math. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sitting in the Knesset cafeteria between figurative giants, many of them were actually quite tiny, giants of our generation. So if I mention the names, then, you know, those of, the, those of your listeners that may remember Esther Aziel Naor and Yechil Kedishai, Many people don't remember them. But the euphoria that broke out in the Knesset cafeteria, I was seven years old. I was just happy that I got to eat as many pickles and nobody was paying attention to me as I did that night. But the euphoria was clear to me even as a seven-year-old. And the humility of Menachem Begin, who I was very lucky to know as a little girl and play piano for after my piano lessons because the prime minister's home was next door to the music conservatory in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem of, you know, the 70s. You must have very cool pictures. I have cool pictures. Wow. The personal connection actually enables me to basically n not be confused by the political or ideological hijacking 
of the very consistent ideology that he represented, as I said, as a national liberalist or as a liberal nationalist. Now, the word nationalism today, you can't even say, but he believed in that nationalism that we spoke about is Zionism, right? The progressive national liberation movement of the Jewish people and indigenous people returning to an ancestral homeland after millennia of exile and persecution, of which he experienced himself, committed to equality. And I, at that conference as well, reminded that he brought the boat people, the Vietnamese boat people, to Israel, right? Enabling the Vietnamese boat people who had no other shore that would take them, no other shore that would accept them. Um, that's similar to what we experienced just recently. It's different from what we experienced just recently. And we have to be willing to, even in a world of 240 character tweets, be able to both have knowledge and have nuance. So in a black and white reality, where actually what I think is most dangerous is that the polarities or the extremities, I spoke about the word moderation, you know, replacing centrism. How'd that go at the conference? Yeah, no, so it went really, really well. It went, you know, interestingly, you How's know, it going in the world? Was, yeah, first of all, I could send you the, uh, I could send you the link to, to what I said there. And it went, it went over very well because people who know Begin actually connect completely to that, right? And understand that the nuance of his, of his leadership enabled him to both sign a peace treaty and ensure that we apply Israeli law to all of Jerusalem. His understanding as a lawyer that, that understood that reality has to have representation in terms of its legality, in terms of its legal manifestation, because, and we see it right now as we speak, because if there is a gap between the two for far too long, that has grave dangers to actually affecting reality, right? So if by definition, I want to have representation for what has happened in reality, which is five armies, you know, declared war on the state of Israel, threatened to obliterate it, by an incredible resource of, of spiritual strength, of, of physical ability, of, of Golda Meir said it best, we had nowhere else to go. One, that's 1967, we just marked 55 years to the end of that six-day war. That six-day war enables me as a lawyer, as an international law, as a human rights expert to understand that war doesn't only come in one form of airplanes and tanks and bullets. But the war that was waged on Israel for its legitimacy, for its existence, that we are experiencing today, whether it's BDS as a you know, tool or the delegitimization, demonization, and double standards towards Israel at the UN, in whatever format we experience that war, it's very important to recognize it as a war, which 1967 was a turning point for. I remind us that the three no's of Khartoum, 1967, are a manifestation of that, right? No to recognition, no to negotiation, no to peace with Israel. Actually, and I was very lucky to be sitting in Knesset to vote for the three yeses of the Abraham Accords that recognize and negotiate and are seeking to create this path to peace with Israel. We shouldn't miss that potential paradigm shift or gloss it over for just business initiatives. And so it's that legacy of Menachem Begin that's very much alive today, that it is needed today of all times, if I ever had to pinpoint a time in which he was more relevant, this would be the intersection, right? Never had been more important the ability for the intersection of those values of Zionism and liberalism in order to be able to manifest, first of all, the goals of the Declaration of Independence, but also to bridge the gap between Israel's 
populations, to bridge the gaps between Israel and global jury, to bridge the gap or at least expose the hypocrisy between Israel as a member state among the nations, supposed to be with equal yeah. rights and responsibilities. Wow. Yeah. I can tell you're someone whose mind doesn't turn off often because you're always moving and thinking. But what is one kind of verse or song or something that takes you away from the intensity of these kinds of debates and discussions and just gives you hope and fills your soul with like happiness? I'm very grateful for Shabbat, I have to say. Very grateful for Shabbat and every Shabbat actually is when I refuel with my own family and we sing a lot family who sings together. I don't know, my kids would laugh at me, but, you know, um, is very rare. We sing everything. We don't just sing Shabbat songs. We sing, you know, good old-fashioned Israeli songs, and we sing whatever it is that is available. And just to say about the hope and what gives me hope, um, I'm just coming from a meeting, actually, of the legacy of the late Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs. And the late Rabbi Sachs differentiated between hope and optimism, and he said the following, and this guides me in everything that I do, including in Knesset. He said the following. He said, optimism is the belief that everything is going to be okay. Hope is the belief that we have to make it okay. In that sense, optimism is a very passive virtue and hope is a very active one. And it takes no courage at all to be an optimist, but a great deal of courage to have hope. And so what really fills me with a tremendous amount of hope is when I look at the future generation and I engage the future generation. When I not only my own Shabbat table, but when I engage the younger generation in any format, it doesn't have to be you know, an official one, it could be unofficial capacities, I am inspired and I am driven for you know, this time in our lives to leave a better state of Israel, Jewish and democratic, a better engagement with global jury, a better understanding of the importance of, especially for champions of human rights on campuses across the world and the understanding that we have a critical role to play. And so what infuses me with hope is actually the future generation and my commitment to leaving behind what it is that I can do that's a little bit better than what we have today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Our interview is over. We shook hands and she headed off to her next engagement. Maybe she's too sane for today's politics, too nuanced to be more widely known, and too calm for all the commotion around us. And yet, that image of her as a little girl, playing alongside her mother's desk in the office of the late, great Prime Minister Menachem Begin, stuck with me. And I would bet it stuck with her. I could see it. Cats have many lives. So do Israeli politicians. Maybe, in a more sane time, in a more nuanced normal, there will be an opening for Michal to share the lessons from those memories. Or maybe we don't deserve her. Maybe her voice and brilliance is beyond Knesset committees and pre-decided and pre-dictated votes for or against any piece of legislation. I don't know, but... I know Menachem Begin stuck with her, in her memory, in her politics, in her conscience. What will she do with these planted seeds and sealed memories? Where that plant will go is anyone's guess. But I felt a bit more optimistic, knowing that on that day, she was leaving to go share her intelligence and reason with more people. Who knows, maybe one day, nuance will outshine the noise. And maybe on that day, Michal will rise up once again 
to the challenge of driving up the steep hill to the Knesset to fulfill a promise to put actions behind the dream of a Jewish democratic state. A state that Menachem Begin once led, a state which Michal's mom once served, and a state where Michal is nowhere near done searching for her role to serve it. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zayn. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>